Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm Faye. Hi, and I'm James. Today we're talking to Raj Guerrera, who is the VP Managing Director of Samsung in Cambridge. Raj has over two decades of experience in short-range and wireless comms technology research and development, business development, and also marketing. He literally was at the start of many of the technologies that we now take for granted. He now runs silicon and software development teams here in Cambridge and also for Samsung in Denmark. So Raj, welcome to Cambridge Tech Podcast. Uh, You've been at Samsung now for 10 years, a role that I believe came about because you were part of the team that helped sell CSR's handset business to Samsung in a deal that, and I love this bit, was worth 310 million for its 310 staff. So let's start with a little bit of a background about your career and the companies that you've worked for that have taken you to Samsung. Sure. Well, firstly, Faye, thanks thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've had an interesting time in Cambridge. So I first moved to Cambridge in the mid-90s and joined a, a, what was a tech consultancy at the time called Symbionics, uh, working on this quaint technology called Wireless LAN. Mm-hmm. And a lot's changed since then, obviously, and this technology's really taken off. But I remember uh, back in the day, we were we were trying to get data rates of one and two megabits per second. And the term Wi-Fi had not even been coined then. So you can see quite a lot of changes have have happened in the interim and the technology's gone from strength to strength. And it's really good to see the part that Cambridge has played in that. And Symbionics was one of the founding companies to invest in wireless technology. So that was a, a really good start. I suppose looking back at my career, I've also been in... Uh, large companies as I am now, but also in startups. I've worked for a couple of tech consultancies. uh, And I suppose over the years I've seen, particularly in the semiconductor space, quite a lot of consolidation, quite a lot of M&A. So I've been on the the teams both acquiring companies and being acquired as well. And that's really how I ended up in Samsung. So being acquired from the team uh, from CSR back in 2012 um, was, was an interesting transition going from Uh, a British listed company to a big Korean conglomerate, quite a cultural shift, quite a technical uh, shift. Um, But a lot of things remain the same in terms of the team coming across the focus area on wireless connectivity. Um, That's really been the main focus over the past 10 years. And how were those acquisitions? Do you think they were different 10 years ago to what they are now? Uh, I think that I think acquisitions come in waves. So I think there's definitely a trend of a wave of acquisitions and it becomes a bit of a trend and then there's a quiet period. So uh, there is a bit, I guess, of flop mentality when companies start acquiring and go on acquisition sprees. If I think of how those deals have panned out, not all are successful, not all live up to their expectations. So it's definitely something where there's a skill to picking the winners, but also a skill to integrate and get the best out of what you're acquiring as well. And because companies don't often do acquisitions, is not something you can do again and again and, and perfect. You kind of have to nail it on the first or second time to really get the, the benefit from it. What a career in terms of 20 years. You've, you've been at the beginning of a, an industry to the point now where 
we can't live without wireless connectivity in our daily lives. Everything comes to a halt if we can't connect uh, to the internet. You know, our homes, our cars, our personal lives. What what have been some of the kind of highlights, lowlights through those 20 years of the development of mobile and wireless? Well, it, it has been interesting from the initial period when there was frankly a lot of skepticism about whether you need short-range wireless. And I think in my career, I remember two big periods of scepticism. Firstly, when I was working on uh, wireless LAN, and in the mid-90s, the way you would add wireless LAN to something was to plug in a PCMCIE card, which yeah. was a big credit card-sized thing you put in the side of your laptop, uh, and that would give you very slow wireless connectivity. So a lot of the conversations we were having were, why would I not just plug Ethernet in? This thing called Ethernet works really well. And so we discussed mobility. Hey, maybe you want to move your laptop around. Oh, that's easy. I just unplugged my cable and plugged the other one in. But slowly people got used to the idea that actually it is quite liberating to be able to walk around. I think some applications, so for example, we had customers who had handheld units in warehouses. So they had mobile staff who physically could not be tethered. And they became early adopters and put up with the slow data rate and the poor power consumption uh, as we perfected the technology. So that the laptop skepticism was overcome. The next wave of skepticism was putting Wi-Fi into a phone. And I remember many a discussion with some large phone manufacturers about why you would possibly want to put Wi-Fi in a phone. Uh, this was all pre-smartphone era. Mm. So obviously a big part of phone feature phones was the cellular modem and cellular coverage. So why would you need this other wireless technology in there as well? And of course, the the smartphone era has really proven that you can't get enough data into your device and out of your device. So the more ways and the faster bit rates you have to do that, so much the better. I think that's the, the challenging thing with, I guess, the business case for new generations of network technology is you've got to come up with the applications that might fill that bandwidth. But I think it's been proven over the last 10, 15 years that if you give people bandwidth, they'll fill it up. You know, who would have imagined things like Netflix? And I remember being involved with mobile video in the early days when you're trying to download a, you know, a video clip over GPRS or something like that. And now your expectation is instant streaming to, to Netflix. And that will just continue, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's still no sign of the end of the appetite for faster and faster data rates. The other challenges we face are delivering that at lower and lower power consumptions. Mm. So battery life needs to be extended as, as long as possible. Some of the other challenges, interoperability. Yeah. Uh, and particularly one of the one of the challenges of something which has evolved so much from the initial incarnation is that you have to keep backwards compatibility. If you're talking wireless devices, you're going to talk to a lot of old devices. Yeah. And so even though you might have the real really fast modes of operation, you need to support and fall back to slower modes when needed to talk to older devices. And that, that's a whole set of challenges because some of these older devices are not in production now. Some of them have software bugs in, particularly particularly a lot of devices we've, we've sold into China. There's a lot of non-interoperable devices in China where they simply don't comply to the spec, Yeah, but they're widely propagated. So you can't say, hey, your, your end's wrong, please fix that. You have to accommodate that in our implementation and work around that. I mean, I think an observation is like one of the things that the industry got really well got right was the standardization element. You know, I know it's not perfect globally, but the fact that Wi-Fi works anywhere pretty much, you know, GSM works pretty much in most countries these days. But 
you know, I just literally came back from the States on holiday. My phone works, but to plug it into the power socket, I need an adapter. <laughs> you know, that just shows you the power of standardization, I guess. Absolutely. And it is it is a, a definitely a necessary part of the industry. Sometimes a bit frustrating when things move slowly, but it is it is definitely necessary. There's something also satisfying about, you know, collecting all technical peers together yeah. and pitching ideas for the new standard and then voting on them and debating them. So there's a bit of meritocracy there, although inevitably it also gets mixed in with a bit of politics, which is also intriguing as well when companies are trying to work together to push their version of the, the new standard through. That's also an interesting dynamic. So it's not purely a technical exercise. Mm. And you've always been heavily involved in standards development and associations and those types of things. I take it that you need to do that for your job, but is it also something that you believe you should be doing? Well, it was, I was more hands-on in my early part of my career, so attending some of the Wi-Fi meetings, which were predominantly in the US. So as a young engineer, that was a great excuse to travel uh, regularly and go to some nice meetings and meet people from different uh, countries, different companies, uh, and actually keeping in touch with some of them who've now you know gone gone on to very successful careers in those companies. So it is very satisfying to see how, as well as the industry's grown, the technology's grown, but some of the people have grown as well. Is there anything in the history of your career to date that didn't work out so well? Well, I remember I worked on 3G technology early in the early 2000s, and we had this inevitable debate about what's it going to be used for. And again, this was before social media, before smartphones. So I, re I remember a lot of fuss was made about video calling. So the big marketing push, why you need 3G, is that you can then make video calls. And of course, this use case didn't really take off. People were like, I can just talk with my voice. I don't need to, to have this video uh, interface. And so some of the marketing kind of changed. But that was really the, the killer use case, which didn't turn out to be a killer use case, except it did come back later with FaceTime yeah. and WhatsApp video calling. So maybe it was a use case ahead of its time. Maybe yeah. people just needed it to be packaged differently or maybe you just needed time to to kind of get used to the idea and get hooked on it. So for me, that's quite an interesting kind of failure, but also it, it came good in the end. And in the end, ultimately, 3G technology wasn't too held back by it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So much of it isn't necessarily the technology, it's the the marketing. Yes. You know, and also the carriers, pricing models and other things that just put friction in front of the user. Yeah. Whereas when you get something like WhatsApp or FaceTime and it's free and you've got your social network, it suddenly makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the other interesting thing, I suppose, looking at wireless and communication technologies is the network effect, mm. so-called Metcalfe's law. So it the value of it increases the more uh, the network grows and the more nodes there are, the more people you can talk to. So in the early days, it's often difficult to get over that over that initial hurdle to get enough early adopters to make it worthwhile. It's the, the classic, why would I buy a phone? I've got no one to ring. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the things that you're working on at Samsung are obviously going to be confidential and IP related, but what you're doing is involved in so many different types of devices. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of the types of work sure. that you do? Sure. So, yeah, so my team, uh, both here and in Denmark, uh, basically work on Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Both of those technologies are, are um, growing and expanding and adding new features and new modes. Uh, as I mentioned, the data rate, increasing the data rate of Wi-Fi is one of the key things, but also increasing the efficiency of it. That means now we've got so much Wi-Fi densely packed, we need it to operate reliably, even if there are a lot of nodes. Uh, with Bluetooth, some of the, the new 
modes coming along are for higher data throughput. We've also had low energy modes, so-called LE uh, technology been introduced. And a key part of that is LE audio. So being able to use Bluetooth low energy for uh, audio links. Looking further forward, some of the advances are to do with ranging. So being able to tell how far the other device is from you and also in which direction uh, it is. So we basically focus on the the kind of nuts and bolts of these communication technologies. So that's the digital hardware part of it, as well as the software. And I guess another interesting aspect of our, our industry is that even though Samsung's predominantly a, a hardware company and it's a semiconductor company, there's a huge software content. And that's typical of every semiconductor company now. So every time you have a hardware design, you need a lot of software to breathe life into it. Uh, some functions are now controllable by software. So in our, our chips, we have a lot of different processes into communicating. So each of those needs embedded firmware. And a lot of a lot of the work we do is to stabilize that software. So getting getting the hardware done and fabricated and samples back is only the first part of the story. Then there's a long road of, of successive software releases and optimizations. Generally, these days, the hardware is very programmable, very configurable. So you can configure it in a lot of different ways for performance power trade-offs, for example. And so then perfecting those algorithms in software to do that control is quite time-consuming, quite test-intensive. Another big focus we've had with that testing load in mind is automation of testing. So the more we can automate some of that activity, because that frees up people, right, to, to do kind of higher value work. So test automation is a key skill. And then once you've got that, you can then test very easily and very frequently. So for example, if someone is submitting a new line of code into our into our code base, it only gets into there once it's been through a, a rigorous set of tests. So the so-called continuous integration model is quite widely adopted now, but requires a, a certain scale and investment. Right. So we have a lot of shielded chambers in our offices with hardware inside them, which automatically get run. So every time someone submits code, or even overnight or over the weekend, we run a whole battery of tests and auto-analyze the results, and that will quickly tell us, for example, if there's been a regression or if there's been uh, some other issue in the software, and we can quickly get back to a working state. So it contrasts with the way we used to do things you know, well in the past, where we used to have an integration phase of bringing everyone's components together, and then you'd find they don't quite fit, and you have to change things and redefine interfaces. So very much the model now, because the timescales are so short, is to do that continuously. So a lot of software companies do this. It's not not a novel approach, but to do it with the combination of software and hardware, particularly when, when you've got the comms angle, so some of this is radiating radio waves and picking up the other end. So that all requires quite a sophisticated system. And have you been affected by the kind of disruption in global supply chains that's been happening recently? Yeah, as a wider company, for sure, that's that's been an issue in terms of getting the materials to fabricate. In terms of an R&D site, not yeah, so much. Okay. So. From the development side, a lot of what we use is some hardware components, but it's relatively yeah. small volume. We have a lot of compute facility, so thankfully that was all supplied and in place. So that's all so on-premise. Kind of all on-premises, yeah. so we can yeah. do things like the complex simulations of yeah. hardware. Yeah. Are those facilities for the use of Samsung engineers, or do you also work with third-party developers in terms of like encouraging them to develop for the platform and those kinds of things? So for our areas, because it's very much the nuts and bolts, it's very much in in-house in and. Yeah. For the, for the Samsung group. Yeah. Uh, we do collaborate with other Samsung offices so yeah. in the US, in, in India, in Korea, in China. So it's very much a global team working on this connectivity technology. And we, we kind of touched on it in some of the conversation, but 
Am I right to think that the real growth opportunity in these areas are going to be things like machine-to-machine IoT, smart home, all of these kind of new applications that are quite emergent right now? Yeah, so definitely the diversity of devices has gone up. I, yeah. I would say smartphones and tablets are still the main area in terms of volume, in terms of value. Yeah. So, And that still drives a lot of innovation. But from wearables to smart home to all sorts of devices, TVs, white goods, Mm. uh, uh, now connectivity is so easy to integrate, so affordable and so useful, back to that network effect. Mm. I think we have seen the widespread adoption of it. So so now I think it is quite ubiquitous, which is very good. Throws up another set of challenges, so things like the interoperability and legacy challenge, uh, as well as the efficiency in quite crowded spaces. Uh, but they're all good challenge for us to to solve. Let's talk about GrowthWorks. It's the fully funded program that's supporting the leaders of ambitious growth businesses to scale and double their profits and productivity. If you're looking to take your business to the next step, GrowthWorks will support you to plan bigger, scale faster, and stay ahead of the game so you can deliver on both your financial and market share targets. Exclusively for businesses across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, GrowthWorks is here to help you. Get started and arrange a call with them on www.growthworks.uk. So Raj, you just mentioned earlier on that you are also responsible for the team in Denmark. So let's talk about people for a little bit. Do you see any differences in the teams, the dynamics? Obviously, the head office is South Korea. Culturally, how is it working at Samsung? Yeah, I suppose that's been one of the most interesting aspects of of my recent job has been getting a deeper appreciation of the culture uh, across the globe and many things in common and some things are different. So the things in common certainly uh, at least in our community, there, there's definitely a lot of drive and a lot of uh, a lot of ambition, a lot of interest in, in collaborating with with other people as well and learning. So, although we've had a bit of a uh, a stall in travel, now we're reviving the travel globally, and that has been really good to get back because it really helps you appreciate and connect with the other teams in a way which video just doesn't achieve. In terms of the kind of cultural differences, uh, I suppose there are. The spectrum of individualistic versus team-oriented. So one thing I've noticed, certainly with the team in Denmark, there are a lot more, uh, for example, they'd like a team uh, a team recognition over a, an individual recognition, right. whereas perhaps in the UK it is a bit more individualistic that if you've got a superstar, then, you know, we want to call out, hey, you're a superstar. So there are subtle differences like that, that, you know, where we adapt some of the ways we operate. Uh, but by and large, I think we've got quite a... a, a quite a similar bunch of quite motivated people. Interesting. So we're on the Cambridge Tech Podcast. We're talking a lot of tech. Let's talk about Cambridge a little bit. You know, Cambridge has been a bit of a magnet for for larger technology companies. You know, for example, we've got the likes of uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and of course, Samsung, just to name a few. Why do you think larger companies are attracted to come to Cambridge? So I think think there are several reasons. Uh, Number one is clearly the talent. There's a good Mm -hmm. talent pool here. and it is an area where you can get very bright people in, experienced in the areas that, that you're interested in so they can hit the ground running. Mm. I think certainly for Asian companies, communications is a good factor as well. So the fact that uh, it's all English speaking and they can communicate quite easily. 
Um, that is also very important as well. I think the, the heritage of Cambridge, the links with the university, the reputation uh, also is very valuable in terms of uh, explaining or justifying why do you need an office in, in Cambridge? What's, what's so good about that? And certainly it's, it's world recognized for scientific and technical achievements. I think it's, it's also the ecosystem, isn't it? We both serve time on the CW board. Correct, yes. Um, you, you, a lot longer than me, nine years, just stepped down from being the chair. Um, so how important do you think that ecosystem is as well? Uh, I, I think it's very important. I think not just in terms of directly pe working with people or doing business with people, but also getting inspired. So getting ideas and cross-fertilization from one sector to another I think that only happens when you're in close proximity and you have the opportunity just to talk to random people that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise talk to. So we have quite a good biotech sector here as well. I know there's a lot of crossover. My own daughter actually is working on biomedical devices. So she's got this hybrid of uh, biochemistry plus software background. I think that kind of area is very interesting in general, but especially for Cambridge, I think we're well poised to exploit that. So I believe that Samsung just celebrated its 10th anniversary in Cambridge. Did you do anything special for that? Yeah, we had quite a good party. So we, <laughs> first of all, we had a drinks reception at the Computing Museum. Oh, so yeah. I thought it was quite fitting we'd go around and now we're talking about history, see some of the old technology. And it was really great to see uh, some of our old, older employees say, hey, I worked on this and this has got my software. Products are in museums <laughs> now, okay. <laughs> so, uh, and it was just a reminder of how fast our industry has evolved. Mm. It's not really lo that long ago that we started this stuff and look at what we've achieved. So that, looking back, I thought was quite poignant as we hit, hit the decade. Uh, 10 years in the history of Samsung is not that long. Actually, it's quite a, a, an established company, but it has changed a lot in 10 years and we've changed a lot as well and we've we've achieved a lot uh, we also had a black tie dinner we had some guests over from korea we had some executives uh, and then some of us flew over to alborg and did the repeat there so in alborg actually we chose to have it in an art museum so i think that was also quite fitting that in that we we're not just creating technology and science there's a kind of uh, artistic flair to some mm -hmm. of the things we oh, create absolutely. as well uh, and i think that is quite important not to lose that appreciation of a thing of beauty, which could be, you know, a bit of code or a hardware design, that also is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's that the old, we miss the A. We always talk about STEM, but there is an A in there as yeah, well, absolutely. which is the artistic side absolutely. of it. Um, so talking about artistic side um, and part of your overall engagement, I love the fact that you roll your sleeves up and get involved and, and the um, Diwali photo that you yes. posted, I just thought was absolutely cracking. Um so do you, as a leader of these, you know, these different centres, how important is it to you to be, you know, to also be one of the team and to keep everyone engaged and motivated? Uh, I think it's very key. So, you know, we often say customers king, but actually the, the employees probably are above that, you know, emperors or whatever. So I think given there is such a shortage of talent and experienced talent that keeping people retained, motivated, yeah. uh, engaged, particularly post-COVID, now we've got hybrid working. So building that emotional connection with your employer is particularly important. Leaders have a key role in that. So, you know, how do you do that? I think having a good personal relationship with staff, that's very important. They've got to feel you're approachable. They've got to feel you're uh, friendly. So setting the right tone and, you know, having some degree of flexibility, it's all about give and take. We often ask our staff to do quite difficult things, you know, when we have project milestones. So being able to have a bit of give and take as well uh, I think is very important. 
I talked a bit about meritocracy, so having an environment where people feel when they go above and beyond, it is recognized both, you know, not just financially, but also in terms of kudos. That's quite important as well, because in every industry, you do end up with some people who are just amazing. They're just superstars. So you really want them to shine. Uh, you don't want to disenfranchise anyone else, but but you do want to make sure that that, that kind of amazing work is, is recognized. Really, really interesting. So, I mean, thanks so much for spending the time coming on. We appreciate you're a very busy person. No, it's been brilliant. Really nice to talk to you guys. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 